it also makes it dynamic rather than static. You're physically moving through all these different interactives and it supports the art. Everything we do at Cleveland Museum of Art is about supporting the art. It's never technology for technology's sake. It's used to attract and understand, not to distract. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we are taking a visit to the Cleveland Museum of Art. Our guest is Jane Alexander, who is the Chief Digital Information Officer for the Cleveland Museum of Art, where she is responsible for creating awe-inspiring and iterative digital projects supporting a vision of innovation, of technology implementation, and of digital transformation that exemplify the CMA's mission. In her tenure at the museum, Jane has moved the organization to be a data-driven, forward-thinking institution through championing endeavors like the Open Access Initiative in 2019, allowing the public to share, collaborate, remix, and reuse high-resolution images of 30,000 public domain artworks, as well as the metadata for 61,000 artworks for commercial and non-commercial purposes. Jane has led many iterations of ArtLens Gallery, originally known as Gallery One, This world-renowned innovative experience uses cutting-edge technology to inspire visitors to look closer, dive deeper, and connect with the museum's encyclopedic collection. Jane also leads the development of in-gallery digital experiences, which includes Revealing Krishna, an unprecedented immersive mixed reality exposition, which opened in November of 2021. An entirely new museum experience where technology is used alongside exceptional Cambodian artworks to tell the story of these objects and their restoration. This will be the first scholarly exhibition of its kind. Prior to joining the CMA, Jane developed and directed Columbia University's distance education program and has served as the technology director and design consultant to Frank Geary's Peter B. Lewis campus at Case Western Reserve University and as the virtual CIO to the Great Lakes Science Center. This was really cool. (laughs) So I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Jane Alexander. So I wanted to start really with your role as the Chief Digital Information Officer for the Cleveland Museum of Art. I feel like it's probably one of the coolest jobs that might exist, (laughs) but I'd love if we could just kind of baseline, how do you describe your role and responsibilities? And we'll, we'll go from there. So uh, I've been at the museum a decade. The mission of the museum since 1916 has to been, has been to create transformative experiences for the benefit of all forever which I found fascinating that in 1916, that was the mission statement and it's currently our mission statement. So I joined during the building project when we had a $320 million addition restoration of the entire building. And so I was brought up, brought in uh, in 2010 in the middle of that. And uh, as part of that, not only uh, all the infrastructure and 
storage and everything we need to do in a building, but there was going to be a space dedicated to the intersection of art and technology, giving people tool sets to look closer and understand art and take away the intimidation of an art museum. So my role really is to, with a fabulous team and multiple partners and cross-collaboration, create awe-inspiring, iterative digital projects that really give people ways that make art matter to multiple audiences. As part of my job, I, I mean, I oversee everything from, you know, outward facing, but to the, all the applications in the entire museum, from ticketing to donors to our collection databases or digital asset management databases, which um, all, everything we do pulls from one source of truth. So that's where all the data, data lives. Um, we also oversee all the capture of analytics through all these different systems that we're facing and um, the actual systems themselves. And then the uh, oversee cybersecurity, Wi-Fi, storage, everything like infrastructure-wise. And then, of course, the support, the not only the help desk for within the museum staff, but outward facing, we call them art lens text, to remove any barriers of technology for visitors so that visitors can always be focused on the art, not the interface. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you respectively to the worlds of art and technology and, and their intersection? How, how did you get to, to where you are today? Well, I grew up in um, New York and went to museums all the time, but I don't have an art history degree. Um, I have a applied mathematics and an architecture degree. So I love the spaces, but I myself, except for reading the didactic next to the artwork, really didn't have, didn't know what else to do. And then also having, um, well, now my girls are all uh, young adults, but 10 years ago, even we had always from when they were young gone to museums, it's a great space. And we would do different things to get the, the kids to look closer. And one game I used to play is find the baby because in art museums, there's lots of babies in the, <laughs> there are quite the a few babies. there's babies all over. So the idea that I had the opportunity to think differently and give people an introduction so that they truly could understand how to look at composition, be it abstract composition or geometric composition, that they could understand symbolism, that they could understand that there's an actual purpose to art objects and kind of all through gameplay and with these, and even just get familiar with the collection through creation and um, deep diving. And by having those tool sets, you be able to go into the galleries comfortable and not only recognize artworks, but be able to dive deeper at a different level. Yeah, there, there's a lot of topics I'd love to explore with you here about kind of this intersection of art and technology and innovation. But I, I want to kind of pull on something you mentioned at the beginning, the idea that I don't, <laughs> I don't have the phrase verbatim, but that this vision is about the future and kind of forever into the future. And in, in many ways, I think from the work that I've seen from you and from the museum is about kind of creating the museum of the future and, and experimenting with like what that actually looks like. And so I, I'd love to just maybe start with some, some context on, on some of the projects 
that you've overseen and, and we'll, we'll kind of go deeper onto each of them and, and explore them because they're, they're all really interesting in their own right, but just to kind of level set for, for everyone listening. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've had, as you said, I have a dream job and I've had the pleasure of really doing things that, I mean, our art museum is, I really will say it's the most digitally innovative art museum in the world. I have not, I've been lucky enough to gone everywhere. And, you know, we really, even, we really have been experimental, but iterative. We constantly build on what we learn. We don't do any one-off projects. I mean, a lot of times museums get a grant and they'll do some gadget and it, they, you know, it's sort of out of date before it even launches or the content isn't easily updated or they've hired a firm to do it and now they have to spend more money. And so from the very beginning, when I took this job, I knew that hardware changes all the time. And in 2010, when we talked about even um, the app that would um, have every object in the museum at all times. So museums, artworks go on and off each week, like 200 objects can change what's on view all the time. And so wouldn't it be nice if you had a device that wherever you are, it would let you know where you, you know you could have, but you could create your own, you could personalize your tours, you could look up any information, you can find where you could go, and that it would connect to that big visualization of our collection, our collection wall, that anything that you see you know, it kind of democratizes the entire collection. And when you choose something, it is saved directly to your phone. And then the phone could take you directly to the piece. At the time, it was like, well, do people, are people even using iPhones? Our, we, our audience back then was 55 plus. And it was a year, I will tell you, in 2012 when we launched that everybody was getting an iPad, it seemed, for the holidays because they yeah. would bring it into our ArtLens text and ask them to download ArtLens. The hardware is changing all the time, so it really has to be about the back end. It has to be about how you're setting up your content and how, um, and that everything is API driven. And by doing that and years of iteration on that, we're really able to focus on the learning goals of when we're creating something and focus on the outward facing experience. So that's been sort of the philosophy from the beginning. In 2016, we redid we began to redo Gallery One and changed everything to Artlens Gallery. And we did that because I had begun to notice that we had these beautiful interfaces in uh, the main space, the Artlens exhibition combines actual masterworks with digital so that you kind of play something, get the concept, and then look at the, go and look at the art, see the art, play the game, and look at the art again, again, giving you a way to look closer. And... I noticed that you could have the best interface in the world and people are intimidated. They overthink interfaces. Mm. Meanwhile, my daughter at the time was eight or nine and she would take my phone and download Angry Birds. And I'd be like, who taught you that? Who taught you how to play that? She was <laughs> like, no one. And I realized that digital natives, the way they learn is that they kind of just touch and move and if their brain kind of is like, uh, they get it, and then they start over and they play. And I thought, what if we remove all the interfaces, remove all the touchscreens, and make everything gesture-based? And, like, could that happen, like, without alienating our non-digital natives? And what we found, and so 216 and 217, we redid everything to um, remove the touchscreen. And we actually engaged 
the digital natives that we weren't really engaging the first time. And more people were now interacting because if you design something well and they watch how it works, anyone, everyone plays. So all different ages um, could work that way. So that was a big change in how we thought about ArtLens Gallery. I will say other things that we've done that, I mean, and that's ongoing and we're always thinking. And honestly, in the next year, we're really thinking about, again, the museum of the future. Um, and with everything that's been going on, you know, how do we make a museum multiple voices? How do we make art relevant and matter to more people? So during, you know, March 2020, when the museum closed down and we went home, lots of museums were putting up, you know, videos they had made and those sort of virtual Google tours. And to me, those weren't relevant, relevant or engaging. So we really took on thinking about audiences from home. Everybody from the, like, how does a member, how are we gonna keep our members when they're not able to go to the museum? What do members need versus what do all these teachers and students and college students who are now working from home? What about all of us? What about workers who, the, where they work, the place, those moments, those water cooler moments the, the, that we, our team, you know, works at an art museum where there's all this art around you. What can we create for them? And we ended up doing a few um, using artificial intelligent games. We did videos at the very beginning about from curators from home um, on what's on their mind. And it was everything from, you know, they'd pick an artwork and talk about loneliness or they would talk about the need for a haircut from a Grecian urn and everything that was going on. And then as the world opened up a little and the museum was open again, we went back into other types of videos. And we and when the museum was closed, we also had a set of conservation videos because even though we were all home, people still need to care for these artworks. And so we, we constantly did different things as things were changing, making things relevant. And I do remember in the fall of 2020, when we at the, you know, back, we all thought that by the fall, everybody, all kids would be back in school, college kids wouldn't be online. And we created ArtLens AI, which I'm really proud of, and I really recommend taking a look at, which was share your view. And so you were no longer in the classroom. So you take a photo from where you are and you upload it. Tartland's AI, and it matches it with an object from our collection. Everything we do, because it's API driven, automatically takes you to the artwork and then all the metadata and all the videos and things that are associated with that. So we constantly are always thinking about audience. We're thinking about learning goals and um, we constantly are innovating and um, iterating on things we've already learned. And I guess the thing right now that's super exciting that no, We have a state-of-the-art exhibition called Revealing Krishna. Mm -hmm. It is this scholarly exhibition about the exchange of fragments and the cooperation and stewardship between the National Museum of Cambodia and Cleveland Museum of Art. Basically, we have an object, our Krishna, which was, you know, that, that different parts were found in the 70s and conserved and it was in the galleries and through technology and in 2014 through 16 they realized that it was conserved incorrectly and that the some of the parts were were belonged to a different sculpture so Hmm. we actually exchanged fragments 
to recon and so Cam the National Museum of Cambodia reconstructed wow. the object and we did. Very fascinating, but very hard for an average visitor to walk into a gallery <laughs> and see fragmented sculpture and get and understand the story. So um, I worked very closely with the curator to say, this is a chance that mixed reality can make a difference. Non-Western shows aren't usually as popular because people just aren't aware of the artwork. They don't have a relationship with it. So right. we really, we, we created a couple of goals. And the first one was a lot of people don't know where Cambodia it is, let, let alone Phnom Da, where these eight gods, including our Krishna and their Krishna are from. And so we started with a immersive video where you walk through cinematic view and, and you travel the waterways to hmm. Phnom Da. And that alone was different. Understanding what the landscape looked like, what it felt like, you know, traveling to there. And then there's another component is all eight gods. At, uh, we actually have loan the, the, on the exhibition currently, there's four, four of the sculptures, but the other four couldn't travel because they're fragile or too large. And so we made life-size photogrammetry where you can interact, gesture-based wise, interact with each god to see different hotspots and understand their iconography. So again, you're now, now by doing that, you can see more than you can see actually even looking at the sculpture. So we find people do that. They have ways of looking at the artwork and actually go back to the actual object. But the big thing we did was a HoloLens to uh, tour. And it's one of the first only tour I know of in that you don't go into a space with a group of people and and hear the story. We wanted to make sure because we knew we had to onboard people who were scholars, people who knew nothing about the artwork, yeah. people who had never used technology, people who knew technology. And so it's a whole it's we kind of set it up and we need to get a lot of people through it. So we set it up almost like a ride where you know, every two minutes, a group of six leave this, there's six different stations and off they go to Phnom Dah. And from Phnom Dah, they go to Brussels where these fragments were found in the Stokely Palace. And then they go to this garden where they were buried and recovered. And then they go to the conservation labs where you actually see the parts and how they were exchanged and what worked and what didn't work. And then in the last station, and this is where digital also is surely helpful, is you, we worked, um, and everything always has to be actually authentic. So we have exactly what the sculpture in the cave temple was found, what it looked like with the jewelry it would be wearing, all polished and not the weathered stone that you see in the gallery. So you're putting everything in original context because sculptures yeah. and pedestals and galleries are very hard to understand. So after you have that, you then walk into that gallery where those sculptures are, and you have a whole different way of looking at them. Yeah, I, it's really such a cool idea. Because I remember I also grew up in New York and went to all these museums, and you get these guided tours, and they bring you through, and they tell you the stories, but you have to like make it up in your head what it all looks like, and the the size, the scale of it, all the context around it. And I imagine it's just kind of this fascinating experience to actually kind of experience it as it was in the context with all of the this other information around it that is accessible in a way where you don't have to imagine what it what it looks like 
it also makes it dynamic rather than static. You're physically yeah. moving through all these different interactives and it supports the art. Everything we do at Cleveland Museum of Art is about supporting the art. It's never technology for technology's sake. It's used to attract and understand, not to distract. And so, I mean, the word immersion is everywhere right now, including like a uh, immersive Van Gogh. And when people say, oh, I'm not into, it, ours is very different. That is, you know, a lot of projectors and a 30 minute video made from images in Van Gogh's collection. But ours is always about using, creating things that bring you to the actual art, bring you to understanding, bringing you to learning more. And it's not just, which is fine. Sometimes an experience by itself is fine just to just to sit and watch. But this is really, we create tool sets to bring you into the, the experience and start your relationship with that object and hopefully with the entire Cambodian collection and all of our Asian collections. Yeah, no, it's it's a few things there I wanted to, to ask you about, but that idea you mentioned of designing for the digital native, it feels like very clear what the use of technology unlocks and affords that kind of the traditional museum experience lacks. Uh, and one of the the phrases I kept thinking about as, as I kind of prepared <laughs> for our conversation today was, was state of the art and how it's just kind of funny that the word art is used to refer both to art and kind of antiquity, but also truly the most future state. And I thought it was kind of fun because what you're doing is kind of stewarding the past and history, but also like you're saying, like it's for the art and not for the technology's sake. It's it's about accessibility of the art. But with that, I wanted to ask kind of about a few maybe specifics because I, I don't, my sense is that I, uh, most people probably don't think about museums as highly innovative organizations. But obviously, how you think about it is very different. And so one of the ideas you mentioned was kind of this iterative process. And I wanted to hear how you think about and, and leverage the use of data and kind of how it drives your decision making. Well, I'm a data lover, first of all. And I, well, I'll use as our, we, we, we capture analytics on everything and we also work with evaluation teams and the data to make decisions uh, going forward and what works and not works. One of the gallery one from the very beginning, everyone like, I mean, we launched it and I went to a conference a month later and I was like, oh, it's amazing. And then they were like, does it work? You know, and, um, yeah. and the, the purpose of gallery one, I mean, Technically, everything works, but the purpose, the goal was to get people into the galleries, to give them the tool sets to look closer and dive deeper and have an emotional connection with our art. So we did do a study and um, we, you know, through Meraki endpoints, we collect all this data and um, we were able to show that people who spent over five minutes in Artlands Gallery spent 30 minutes to an hour in addition in the galleries. They also went to more galleries and they did, and they went to the store too. But that was interesting. But then the evaluations, that's the data. The evaluations, this is very complex. There's a white paper on our line if anyone's interested in it. But one of the other takeaways is that people 
who went through Artlands Gallery that they self-assessed when they left the museum, they had learned a lot more. They were taking away a lot more from their experience than the people who skipped it. And so again, those were two things that said, oh, okay, this is working. And just as we were diving into more um, and different ways of thinking, when we, as you know, we all went home in March, 2020. And we were kind of bummed because we were working on this Revealing Krishna exhibition and we had just done prototyping of it. And I told the team, this is an opportunity to really think differently because everything's online. We're now, everything is going through us. And you'll appreciate this since you're in New York, Cleveland has some remarkable, you know, we have the Cleveland Museum of Art, we have the orchestra, we have the Metro Parks, but the rest of the world doesn't know it. Although we think they do, they don't know. <laughs> so if we're, you're not an East Coast or a West Coast museum, you can, I mean, yes, scholars know about our collection, but the pandemic was an opportunity because place didn't matter. It was all like who had the best tool sets online? Where was it easy to download? Where was there things that were constantly being updated and new information? So we did, we had a cross collaborative team of people from interpretation, education, design, technology, digital. And uh, we had weekly meetings on the projects we were working and we had weekly analytics. And it started off with like four pages. It was a 20 page report each week where we had visualizations and we looked at for our live events. You know, people kept wanting to take, it was it was also really helpful to, to help the museum think differently. People, you know, we would have normally a two hour member party and people wanted to put that online. It's like that you can't translate. You have to think about it differently. And yeah. it was hard to tell people 30 minutes is is really the, the sweet spot for doing these kind of programs. And even though some people will stay on till the end or whatnot, we looked at the data. We showed when people jumped off. We showed that at Q&A, how many people stayed on, which, on certain talks and how many jumped off as soon as we got to that. We looked at video lanes because we we're making all these different kinds of videos. And we now we're doing a whole series that we're continuing with called Art in 60 Seconds. And uh, it was especially when people were being zoomed down. And, and not only did those videos get more hits, but people watched longer the 60 second video than the three minute video sometimes, you know? And so it showed like we were able to say, you know, say like, this is actually more effective. You know, if you do all this work and no one's viewing them or watching it, you can do it. So analytics are extremely important. Prototyping is another thing that's unbelievably appropriate, especially for this exhibition. We had to prototype the journey, the, the 360 video uh, multiple times so that the blending was right. And because we have to build in another space, that was the thing that was very important. The accuracy of the content is extremely important. So we um, work very closely with the scholars that are involved in it. The accessibility, the UX and the UI of everything, so that again, it's about the art. It's not about, I don't want people to leave Krishna and be like, that was the best technology exhibit. I want them to leave and say, <laughs> oh my God, what an incredible story. I had no idea that this is how museums, you know, this is why museums have artifacts in their collections. There's all this talk about, you know, during wartime when different things are looted and, you know, everything should just live in the, where they came from. But this was a case that showed the best practice and that not only with working with the National of Cambodia, where we 
able to tell this great story, but we have create we have the resources that we've created of all eight gods photogrammetry that is on the website that anybody can use. We can we have a Hololens um, software that can be used around the world. I mean, there are multiple reuses of assets that would never be able to be brought just to so many people. Yeah, it introduces a few ideas I, I wanted to to bring up with you as well. One is of all the initiatives that I've seen, I think the open access one is really fascinating because I think it it speaks to a few of the ideas you've introduced so far. But but one that struck me was like the just percentage of things that are displayed publicly in the museum is such a small percentage of what the museum has. And there's really this enormous collection of of artwork that people don't get to see. And perhaps you can just describe a little bit what the open access initiative is, but it really seems to be innovative in a lot of fronts, both in terms of how people like myself as a museum goer get to interface with art that they wouldn't get to see otherwise, but also the legal framework around it, like creative commons, public domain, provenance, uh, all these kinds of things. So I'd love if you could just maybe explain what it is and, and why it's important. Sure. Well, I'll step back a second in that, you know, a lot of times I get called from different organizations and museums around the world, like, um, we want to do what you're doing. You know, who did you use to make that? Or what did you do to do that? And I'm always like, are you, do you guys have a digitized collection? Because that's where you have to start. You have to start with digitizing your collection. And before I came, during the building, getting in 2007, when the building project began, they had to take every object off view. And they had the foresight to begin to photograph that. So that mm. was like step one. And we currently, we're almost at, we're at, almost at, I just looked at the analytics today. We're almost at 98% fully digitized of the entire collection. Wow. And so digitizing collections is important, but then also the digital asset management systems and the um, collection management systems that they're all API driven is also important because if you, you know, having, um, making sure your data is clean and it's reliable, but being able to pull from it means that as the data changes, as a curator finds out that something discovers it's a new date or writes a new didactic or realizes that there's a different title to this artwork, it doesn't, you don't have to update anywhere else. It updates everywhere. It updates on collection online. It opens up in our open access. It opens up in the 20 different interactives it can be in. And so by having one source of truth, it's also easy to know that everything is always accurate. So Digitizing the collection's always been the number one thing. I had really wanted, um, we're a free museum. And so it was the next logical step to have an open access collection. And what open access is, is that objects that are perceived in the public domain are available to the public to um, share, reuse for any way they want, even commercially. And that's very scary to a museum. And we were not the first museum to go open access. But when I saw like the Rijksmuseum and the Met Museum, uh, once I heard that when our director was in uh, 2018 was like, let's do it. I was like, oh, great. That's going to be easy. We already have the back end in place. I want to make sure everything's available on GitHub. I want to make sure everything is downloadable in our API. But then I started to look at the different sites and I realized they didn't have a good API wasn't as searchable. Mm -hmm. And everyone, we have now sort of led 
the charge on a best practice, which is really good. But my other thing is when I went to sites, it was very hard to understand, you know, how can I download this? What is open access? It's different licensings also. And then sometimes you, you be able to use it, but you still had to get permission or you could only use it for educational purposes. So I wanted um, Creative Commons Zero, which is the most open practice. And museums in the past were about, they used to make money from you know, people would pay to be able to use an image in a book or something like that. And so if something's in the public domain, we went from protecting everything to really we're caretakers. And as caretakers, we should be sharing this. And we don't ha- we don't decide what you want to use it for. It is it is it is your choice to how to use it. And by by having top we also the other thing I want to make sure is that we offered a lot of times when you download objects in open access it's not a large resolution. We wanted everything to be mm. high res TIFFs. We're gonna do it, we wanna do it right, you know? And um, I think it was the director of the Reichs Museum said once when they did open access, you know, people always are, especially now with people having phones and everything, you know, are have use kind of the wrong image of an object of a masterwork. So why not us provide the actual correct image, you know, for the public? The other thing is by having an open access and making it usable, it was to me that all the metadata associated with it was important. So a lot of times in open access, they didn't include the didactic, the description of the artwork. They didn't include the provenance. They didn't include the exhibition history or the citations because there's this feeling like, well, it's always being discovered and it's not, it's going to be changing it, you know, but we're all going to be dead before the research is done (laughs) on all these objects. So, and by, having an API as things change, you update it. So I really fought for um, provenance be available. And by having all those, we have 36 fields of metadata associated with an object. If it's known, it's up to 36 fields. By having that along with the image, you actually keep the scholarship, the thing that people are scared about with open access. And we're in multiple repositories now. We were just looking at Wikimedia this last month, they have art of the month, three objects, and they picked three of them were right from our collection. And we had, I'm going to say the wrong number, but I do know, like we've had 8 million views from Wikimedia alone on Cleveland Museum of Arts collection. So we were becoming a resource for everybody to use, for not only scholars or teachers or museum goers, but it can be used in multiple ways. People use our collection for visualizations. NASA used it for a visualization project that, you know, wasn't about the art, but was about looking at the use of metadata with art. So it's, it brings, again, it makes our objects and what, what makes art matter to a lot more audiences and not just from the voice of the sort of the single voices, but multiple voices. Yeah, I think one of the really powerful and cool things about making stuff open is that people can build on it and it's not, you don't always know what they're going to build. And those are, those are some really interesting examples. I I was wondering, like, of the things you've seen people build on top of this stuff, what have been maybe the most surprising projects or, or things of that nature? During COVID, when everybody's Netflixing and streaming, um, (laughs) I did not see it myself, but my two amazing project managers and my daughter, no, the the show Bridgerton, which was like the number one show on Netflix at some point during COVID, 
had two of our artworks in it. Everyone saw it. Everyone was going crazy. The interesting thing when you looked at the analytics, the ticks to the actual artwork went way up. People saw it and they actually went <laughs> to the clutch online. That also happened with HBO Hacks was on and there's an object called, uh, it's a Gauguin object that was in the show. But the thing recently that was crazy, some people say controversial, but I don't say think it is at all. There was always this worry about, you know, when I wanted to do open access, well, what if, if people don't, you know, use an object and something we don't like, like, that's okay. You know, like they were like, what about if someone mm. uses it on the side of a, a milk carton? I'd be like, that would be great. I mean, again, it's access, <laughs> it's starting a relationship and knowing the collection. And I don't know, I think everyone's seen it, but the very first ad for Meta, for Facebook's Meta, made this video from an object in our collection. We had no mm. idea except that on Monday morning, our object went through the roof. It then the next week had all these articles about the company and Facebook and all that is. But meanwhile, they would mention, oh, and the object is from the Cleveland Museum of Art. And so that object by an artist who was a little crazy in his time and was actually a tax collector, you know, I almost think he would have, like his object, and he's a famous artist, but was like looked at constantly. And it's still, it's one, it's the top one This we just went through the analytics. It's the top object looked at. And I think that's great because people were like, oh, I, this ad, it's so awful and Facebook's evil. And, you know, I just saw comments online. But what I laughed about was, yeah, but everybody went to the original artwork. Everyone went and looked at, the original artwork, not the animated version of it. So I think that's fabulous. Yeah. One, I'm just going to throw this question out there. In some vision of the future, you know, kind of tying in this, this metaverse, you know, especially there's billions of more digital natives in the world kind of transitions online where these biggest companies are now explicitly focused on the metaverse and the space tying the digital and real worlds together. Is there a future, maybe not too far away, where kind of the museum experience follows suit into the into the metaverse? I don't know. I mean, here's the other thing. We don't do innovation, as I said, technology for technology's sake. We solve yeah. a problem. People ask me for years, are you going to do VR? Are you going to do, you know, we did AR in 2012 because I wanted your, op, you know, back then no one was doing it, but that you could hold your your phone up to an artwork and hotspots would pop up to give you more information while you were, you know, so you didn't have to look while you were looking at the artwork. We used HoloLens, you know, it's, I was very scared about using HoloLens for the Revealing Krishna exhibition because it's another barrier, like once you're handing out headsets. So we had to do a lot of work so that mm. it's a smooth transition. So what will we do in the future if it's solved? You know what I, I like to always understand what's out there, what people are doing. And then when it's, it's, it's try, it solves a problem of a learning something we're trying to achieve, then who, you know, we do it. It's hard sometimes for the museum because we do things that have never been done before. And it's, I mean, even, um, I really pushed that we had to have provenance in our open access. It was yeah. really important. It sounded scary, 
But I did point out when we publish books, we have the provenance and that's out of date. This is at least going to be constantly updated as new things are discovered. And it's yeah, about no. transparency. Our museum really is about let's be transparent about everything. This is truly about making, you know, again, as I said, our goal is to go from one voice to multiple voices, making art matter to multiple audiences and bringing more people into this is a free museum. Yeah, no, it's, it is very cool. I guess when you are thinking about different technologies uh, and kind of evaluating them internally for, you know, which of these are going to respect and, and, and serve the art well, how do you kind of like test things? You mentioned kind of prototyping process, but do you kind of run experiments before stuff is rolled out? How, how do you think about that? Oh, constant, like this whole revealing Krishna. So for the journey, the uh, 360, we built, we fully built a prototype twice. And there's not space in a museum to do that. We did it the first time in between an exhibition down in an exhibition space. And the second time we did it in, we had to remove art in Artlands while Artlands was closed during the pandemic to do it the second time. For the HoloLens, the development, we, I mean, developers will do things. We will um, then look at it for content. We'll look at it for use. We'll bring people in who haven't seen it or done it see how that works. When we moved to gesture base, we filmed, you know, it said you're being filmed and we had one object, art object, and we had a wall right before you went to Artlands Gallery. And we said, we are learning new technology we're testing. And we not only had an evaluation team who talked to people and watched what they were doing, we also had a camera watching what people are doing. And it was really interesting to me. There would be, a, I remember this mom, she probably had a six-year-old and you have to kind of put your hand up to kind of grab the object and put it in the Oculus. And the mom was just kind of didn't know it. It was just moving her hands. And the boy took the mom's hand and put it there, you know, to show her. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is we don't want to create things from scratch. We look at UX and UI that's already in place. You know, when when we heart, went on our visualization wall in 2012, the hearts for favoring was already happening on Instagram or you, you know, like we don't, we, we change what is, how are people using things? And then we, we, you know, we improve on it or we think about what makes it better. So we constantly prototype. We also, we test, we iterate, we evaluate, and um, we don't just, <laughs> no, we don't just like throw something out. <laughs> but what's great is when we have something in place, we can then, update and change like the way our games and stuff are set up in Artlands Gallery right now, we can change content themes and do other different things that are easy. We don't have, it can just go live because we, the, the actual functionality of the interactives has already been tested and are working. Yeah. At an industry level, how do you feel the state of museums has been post COVID and how many are trying to follow suit with what you're doing? What's what's kind of the, the lay of the land there? Well, I do think COVID took a lot of people by surprise who weren't investing too much in digital innovation. As I said, because of open access, because of our digitized collection, because of our backend systems, and because of our API, we were able to pivot really well. And our numbers were everything like ticketing and all these things were going down. Our online views went 
through the roof in 2020 and even higher now. We have not Mm -hmm. slowed down since open access launched in 2019. And a year later, we like, I think we went up 100, we're 400% since open access launched. And that was the highest ever then. Wow. I think museums, I mean, I just know from job descriptions and words like digital and innovation and are, are, are a lot more prevalent to senior leader positions. That's the other thing to me. I've, I've always talked about how this position has to have a seat at the table. I've been lucky that I report to the director. I'm part of the executive team because if it's not about the entire strategy for the museum, it's again, not going, you need, you need to be holistic to this, this strategic plan of the institution. So I do think um, a lot of museums realize they didn't have it. it. We had people in-house who shifted what they were working on and slightly their um, skill sets, but um, we already had a technical team in place, so we were able to really go fast. I mean, it was kind of crazy and the longest, we work long days as it is, but it was, <laughs> our whole team was working like, it was like, a, it, as you said at the very beginning that, like my a sense of time, I, it's like that. That's a lost year. It was like work all day, <laughs> have a glass of wine, get up the next morning, and do it again. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's really a lot more things I want to ask you about. I want to be cognizant of time, though. It, in terms of the things that we haven't discussed, of other initiatives that you're working on, things you're excited about, anything you want to highlight specifically here. Well, as I, I really am going to push that Revealing Christian is open until January 30th. And I honestly think it's the only mixed reality exhibition that is out there. So even as a case study, if you're interested in, you don't have to be interested in Cambodia art. You are going, it's storytelling, digital storytelling. And with real artifacts, I highly recommend coming. Our next big project is a completely new website, which has not been done I mean, I didn't even launch. Oh, wow. the, we, we've redone collections online part of the website because we had to, to be able to do what we wanted with open access. But this is a reboot of the main site and the collections online and the store and our e-commerce part. So it's all holistic in one. But what's a little, so this is a big project that part of me is like, ah, but... <laughs> We're going to try to, as we do in many projects, be a best practice. And this is about inclusive design and accessibility. We want this truly to be an accessible site that improves the overall experience for every user. A lot of times people feel like by adding accessibility, it takes away the designer credit, but that's because it wasn't done correctly. So we are working with experts. So hopefully this will be a, you know, I want you know, buying a ticket to be a pleasurable experience, like to be fun, to almost be like, that was fun. And I do want it, uh, and we are focusing on accessibility. And also, um, even from a point of content, how we can bring new audiences in through even how a website bubbles up the different content and all we do at a museum. I look forward to that. <laughs> website design is uh, challenge. That's a, that's a large <laughs> undertaking. <laughs> Can imagine. Well, the, uh, the the closing question we have for for everyone that that comes on is not necessarily your favorite thing, and I'll I'll make this one a little different for you. Uh, but 
for things that other people may not know about your hidden gems in, in Cleveland, but then I'd also love to hear your hidden gems of the museum. Okay. Well, in Cleveland, it's funny because it's not when I moved to New York, I thought it, from New York in 1997 to work at Case, I thought it was only going to be like a three-year project and I would then go back <laughs> to New York. And my first question was, where's the lake? And I lived on the east side. My kids all went to Shaker High School. And it was amazing how many people really didn't access the lake, you know, and when my kids graduated, I moved, I live right on the way, um, I have a, on the 25th floor of a building right on the lake. And I, uh, I mean, I, I just, it's unbelievable. It's just an unbelievable resource. I face downtown. I see sunrise every day. I post, in fact, I post way too many images of sunrise. And in fact, which is kind of fun, because I do that all the time. I was asked to do like a mini little art show on my sunrises from uh from uh which is funny because i'm not i don't consider myself an artist but uh, <laughs> in an art show as a technologist but uh i i think the lake is a hidden gem it's this large amazing thing that you can easily have access to you can get you can do water piling and canoeing and kayaking and boating easily way easier than you can in any other city and it's just, especially during COVID, watching it change, you know, all different colors and freeze and unfreeze. And it's just to me, uh, like, that's one thing that if I ever le left Cleveland, I'll never have a view like this again. This is just <laughs> incredible. So that to me is, it's large, but for some reason it feels hidden to all of Cleveland. And then a hidden gem in the Cleveland Museum of Art oh my gosh, there's so many aspects. You know, when people come to visit, first of all, they can't mm -hmm. believe it's free. It's an unbelievable <laughs> facility. It has programming and, um, and most of it is free or like our exhibition is $15. I mean, it's the deal of a century. I mean, I will say Artlands Gallery, it's, it's not hidden, but it is something that no other museum has really taken that investment to do something that really speaks to, to all ages and to truly create something that you can go with your, your college kids or your teenage kids who don't, that's when I, I mean, my kids were teenagers when gallery went open. That's when I realized we had to change. They, they, they weren't, they weren't interacting as much. Um, yeah. And that's why we changed it to uh, removing, to, for, for the digital native. But I, it really is, I don't, you know, when someone new starts here and I give them a tour, they're always like, and this is free? Like, does anyone know this exists? <laughs> so, there is a little bit, because I think people have a, you know, what an art museum is, or they went, you know, it's an amazing art museum and they went when they were young, but they haven't, you know, they'll ask me, they'll say, oh, where do you work? And I'll say the Cleveland Museum of Art. And they're like, oh, I used to take art classes there. They were so great. And I'm like, oh, have you been recently? And I can always tell when they haven't really been recently because they don't, they don't know how much it's changed. I mean, mm -hmm. this, it's just to me, unbelievable resource. But if I have to also dive deep, the, the Indian collection, there's a glass box and it's on the um, West side and it's just fascinating. The art is beautiful. Mm. 
the bot, it's all glass. You see, especially in the fall, to me, it's just magical. And if, there's never a bad day when you're frustrated, you just kind of go walk through the galleries. But that is, to me, something that I wouldn't have been something I would have looked for. And right. I find it, you know, really moving. And then, of course, again, I don't know if this is hidden, but Stargazer is my favorite object in the collection. And it's beautiful. And it's so tiny. And it's the, one of the oldest objects in the collection. And she's just amazing. And, you know, I fall in love with it every time I see it. So, but I mean, there's the thing about it. There's something for everyone. There really is. There is. Yeah, it, it is. It's a pretty special place for sure. Well, Jane, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing all of the kind of inner workings of the very, very cool stuff that, that you guys are doing over there. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeffrey, for having me. I hope I kind of get so excited that it, I just ramble about all of it, but you just have to come and see it and experience it yourself. Yeah, no, I I will be again and, and everyone should as well. Okay. If folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, what is the, the best way for them to do so? I'm like on all social media, but you can you yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at I think I'm at Jane C. Alexander. If someone writes me, I'll always answer a question. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Jane. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks for asking me. This was fun. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.